Hello, you're tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. We're pleased to have you join us. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So it tells you what their motives were like. And Paul says, well, actually, godliness is a means of gain. But he's not thinking gain the way they thought of it. In verses 6 and 7, he says this, but godliness with, what's that word? Contentment is great gain. How often is your level of contentment tied to your circumstances? Let's be honest, when our circumstances are comfortable and going well, we consider ourselves to be content. But the first sign of life throwing us a curveball, so to speak, and we are far from content. So how do we get around that roller coaster experience? Well, let's find out as we join Dr. Corbett now, continuing in his series, Dear Timothy, exploring circumstances and contentment. Father, I pray that as we look at your word, you would help us to see in your word the treasure that you have for us today. God, may we behold Christ, behold you as we hold up your word. Now I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm talking through 1st and 2nd Timothy. We've only been making our way so far through 1st Timothy. And one of the things that I've mentioned is just how relevant it is. Paul, as I just mentioned, is in prison in Rome. He, it seems he thought he was only going to be there for a short period of time. He refers in 1 Timothy to when I am with you soon, I hope to be with you soon, I will see you soon. He uses this kind of language. And then when he writes 2 Timothy, which would have only been a few weeks, which would be a few months, so maybe 8, 10, maybe no more than 12 weeks later, he actually now, his, his perspective on things has changed rather dramatically. And he uses language in 2 Timothy that says, my race is nearly over. I have run my race and a crown is awaiting me very soon. And indeed, it was. And we know that Paul was uh, beheaded by Rome, which strangely, they wouldn't crucify a Roman citizen as a, a mark of respect for being a citizen. They would behead them, which apparently was something that I did. Okay, so as we've seen here in 1 Timothy, we've seen that he's actually touched on some, some pretty hot button issues. And what I mean by hot button issues, in um, chapter one, he's referred to the sin of homosexuality. Huh, that's a bit of a, an issue today, I think. He's also touched on the issue of human trafficking, slave traders, he says, and he condemns it. He describes it in the same sin as sexual sin, it, 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 to that gravitas of sin. There is more people trafficked today than at any other time in history. William Wilberforce campaigned to stop the slave trade out of Africa into England and the Caribbean. And we can think, praise God, that was done. But of course, it continued on in America, as we know, for another 50 years after that. And then today, there is a huge trade in, in human beings, largely to do with the sex trade. And my daughter, who is in the final throes of finishing off her, her courtroom practice diploma in order to qualify as a barrister, 
was, was aware through her studies of, because of some of the case studies they had to look at, the, the prevalence of human sex trafficking in Australia and how some of these women who were taken from vulnerable situations in what we might call third world countries are trafficked within Australia. So it's still happening. So these are issues that Paul raises and we're going to, now as we look in chapter 6, we're going to see a couple of things here and I'm calling this circumstances and contentment. And, and the point, I want to bring a couple of points out here from what Paul says. Firstly, he's going to address what I consider to be the two ends of the social spectrum. He's going to start off talking about people who in society had essentially no rights at all. They had no rights. These were the slaves. And then he's going to talk up the other end of the spectrum as he finishes off this chapter and he's going to talk about presumably the people who owned these slaves. And these were people Paul describes as the very rich. And I wonder how Paul would categorise us with our trappings of wealth today. So as we look at this first section, these first few verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6, one of the things I do is I go, but what's the relevance for us today? And the relevance, I think, I, I trust that none of us are slaves. We have some rights. We, we appeal to our rights in employment and so on. But one of the things I would do is, is draw an analogy to say, let's look at the closest thing that we can relate to, and that would be an employer-employee relationship. How should a Christian employer treat a staff member? And should they treat that staff member any different if they are a Christian? There's a question to think about and consider. But now let's reverse that question and ask this question. How should a Christian treat their employer, a Christian employee treat their employer? Now let's ask another question. How should that Christian employee who works for someone treat their Christian employer, Christian employer. I've heard stories where Christian employers, these are Christian businessmen who have told me, I'm really reluctant to employ Christians. I'm reluctant to employ Christians because they take so, so much liberty. They, they take things that they think are okay because they're a Christian. For example, they will witness to someone over lunchtime and instead of lunchtime finishing, they will continue to witness and think that I think that's okay. That they can be half an hour past their lunchtime because they're doing Jesus' work in the lunchroom rather than getting back to work. And they tell me it's not okay. <laughs> They can bring their Bible to work and be doing Bible study and they can be back from their morning tea break late because they got right into the Bible study at work. And these Christian employers tell me, that's not okay. They turn up late and think they can be excused. They want to knock off early because they think they need to, to get to some Christian event so they think that's okay. And 
One Christian businessman said, I'm really reluctant to employ a Christian now because this is my experience with them. And I'm going to say, brothers and sisters, this should not be. This should not be. And so with that in mind, let's read these verses. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So this is writing to Timothy, but it's also written to the Ephesian believers. And the Ephesians, if you recall from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, Paul actually has a section to masters of slaves. He actually tells them, treat your slaves well, because you have a master in heaven. And it seems like they did. And it seems like many of these slaves became Christians and now their master is a Christian and they are, they are not respecting their master as they once did because they have heard Paul say there's no such thing as slave or free, there's no such thing as Jew or Gentile, there's no such thing as male or female, we are all one in Christ. And it seems like the slave was saying, I have as much authority and rights as you do. And this had created a problem. We read in verse 2, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful. Now, why would he be saying that? Because chances are they were being disrespectful on the basis that I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, don't tell me what to do. Hmm. They must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things, Paul says to Timothy. So here's, here's how I would see this if I was a slave. Hang on a minute. When you weren't a Christian, you were terrible to me. I became a Christian first and I put up with your terribleness. But now you're a Christian. I think you need to back off a bit, fella. <laughs> I could understand a slave who is a Christian thinking like that in response to a non-Christian. And I think they would think, come on, God, he's now a Christian Surely you don't, you don't allow him to treat me as a slave with no rights, which essentially slaves did have no rights. They were either born into slavery, sold into slavery because they couldn't pay a debt, or the other category was they had committed some crime against the state and Rome had made them a slave branded them as a slave and given them certain clothes that if they went out into the marketplace, they would be instantly identified as slaves. So this was their lot. And I think if that applied to any of us, we would think, God, can't you do something about this? And here Paul is saying, serve your master as you would serve Christ. Hmm. In other words, 
The fact that you are called to serve Christ is not dependent upon your circumstances. When I heard that story this morning of the couple being interviewed who went through the Victorian Black Friday fires and lost everything, lost their house, lost their business. They were a part of a church and the church, I think I understand, burnt down and, and they had a horrible time. And then COVID happened and then when, as just as they were coming through the lockdown in Victoria, they were driving into town and a tourist came into town and didn't notice the intersection that he was about to drive through and drove right into their car and wrote their car off. This is a bad set of circumstances. <laughs> and I've seen some people who take a bad set of circumstances like this and shake their fist at God rather than open their palm to God and say, no matter what my circumstances, Lord, I still worship you. I still worship you. This week, Kim and I were in the car and we were listening to questions that were being asked of a couple of apologists, people who know the Bible and are able to give a biblical answer to questions that people ask. This question came in from a young man. I'm a Christian. Hmm, interesting way to start a question. And he said, I hear you say that the Bible says that you cannot have casual sex before you're married and I want to tell you why you're wrong. I'm a Christian and I do not worship the Bible. I listen to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit only ever tells me what is good. And quite frankly, I enjoy casual sex, he said. Therefore, it's good. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is affirming my choice to have casual sex. How would you respond to that? He said, we should listen to the Holy Spirit rather than the Holy Bible because the Holy Bible is just the opinions and words of men. This is what he said. Paul is going to address something like that because there is something in that that the Gnostics were also teaching. And we see this later on in the book of Revelation when John is uh, inspired to write to these seven churches and he talks about the sins of, of the, the Jezebel spirit who seduce, was seducing some woman, apparently in one of the churches, was seducing men into sexual sin, claiming that it was some spiritually beneficial experience. It's, that, of course, is nonsense. It's a deception. So here's what Paul is going to affirm, that the basis of the believer's moral code is the Bible. And this is how he describes it. It is the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, in Paul's last letters, which is 1 and 2 Timothy, he rarely, he rarely refers to Jesus as Jesus. And did you notice this expression? Let's have a look at this in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with, note, these, note the expression, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, not sexual immorality, godliness. So Paul is, is saying that the Bible is actually the words of God. And I heard someone put it this way. 
When Jesus inspired the book of Leviticus, it was his words that were recorded. Now, when you think about that, that makes a lot of sense. Jesus is God. He inspired the Bible, which would then make sense that in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, he would reaffirm the Levitical laws about human sexuality. And he sums them all up in this expression, sexual immorality. And where's he getting it from? Leviticus chapters 18 and 19. The laws. And Paul says the whole Bible, all of this are the words and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is meant to lead you, if you read this and apply it, it's meant to lead you into a couple of things. Godliness is the word that we, if you, uh, if you are given to highlighting and underlining like I do in my Bible, you'll see that word occurs several times in this last chapter. He's emphasising this word, godliness. And what is godliness? It is to live like Christ. That's godliness. He is the ultimate example of godliness. Now, here's what Paul is also going to say, and I've paused this thought in this verse, because essentially what he's now going to say is, if you claim to be a Christian and yet you reject the word of God, you are arrogant. Who do you think you are to say that God will accept your version of salvation, your version of Christianity, your reinvented version of Jesus, rather than the actual word of God, the actual salvation that God has provided, and the actual Bible. If you reject God's word, you are arrogant. If you reject God's word, and the word I've got on the screen there is, it's imperatives, which means the things that it says you must do or you must not do. It's imperative, it's necessary that you do these things and don't do the things that it forbids. And yet if you still claim to be a Christian, you're actually arrogant. You're not a Christian, you're arrogant. Paul goes on and he says this, he says, the one who denies the Bible, the words and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Uh, when you hear what Paul is saying here, he's already said at the start of chapter 4 that these teachers, these Gnostic teachers, are actually inspired by demons. They're inspired by demons. These Gnostic teachers, he will go on and say, are depraved. They're depraved in their mind. They are demonically deprived of the truth. It's interesting that Paul is saying, these people can look at the world and not see it. They can look at reality and deny it. They can look at what God has clearly said and deny that as well. He said the only way we can understand this is that they are demonically depraved and demonically deceived. 
Wow, really strong language. Demonically seduced false teachers, the Gnostics, were attempting to do something in the Ephesian church. And what were they attempting to do? They were attempting to start fights. They were attempting to start fights. Paul's already mentioned, they'll argue over little words. They'll argue over interpretations. They'll argue over things to justify their immoral, ungodly behaviour. Wow. And they will cause divisions within churches. And this is happening. And I was talking with this older couple that were with us this morning and saying, well, our church would be quite different to what you've been used to. And they said, yes, it is. But we appreciate that the Bible is being taught. Oh, so I think we should all be encouraged by that. Paul says of these teachers that were promoting this false teaching in verse 5, this is what they do. And constant friction, this is what they were spreading, among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So it tells you what their motives were like. And Paul says, well, actually, godliness is a means of gain. But he's not thinking gain the way they thought of it. In verses 6 and 7, he says this, but godliness with, what's that word? Contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. One of my favourite short story writers is W. Somerset Maugham. W. Somerset Maugham has written a short story based around the events of World War I. He doesn't really talk about World War I, but the character in it went away to World War I. But before he went away, he was engaged to be married. And the woman, well, sorry, he was going to be engaged to be married. And he told his, his fiancée-to-be, I'm not sure that I should accept your father's job in his broking firm. And she was horrified. I think I just want a simple life, he said. And she said, I don't. I, 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 I want someone who can help me to live the lifestyle I've become accustomed to live with daddy and I really want you to take the job that he's offering with the broking firm and he says I'm not prepared to do that and they end their engagement he goes off to World War I and it changes him even more it changes him he's shot in the chest but it hits a silver dollar that he held it had in his pocket top pocket and he doesn't die, the bullet doesn't enter his chest. And in that moment, he says, I should be dead. My life counts for something. I should be dead. And he takes a job for $12 a month. And after the war, his former fiancée is just horrified that he would stoop to such a lowly class of life to have a $12 a month job. He goes off to Paris to try and find himself and to find how he can be of use to people. And The Great Depression happens. A few years after the end of World War I, 
And the man that she married, the man that accepted her daddy's position in the broking firm, has now lost everything, been wiped out of the Great Depression and the great stock market crash, and has been put on a pension of $12 a month. And there's great irony in this story that W. Somerset Maugham has mentioned, that she was not prepared to live a life of contentment. And Paul says, godliness, pursuing Christ with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. How do you begin to be content? Anyone got a suggestion? Is there anyone here who's not content with their lot in life? Don't put your hand up. Is there anyone who's got some advice for someone who may not be content with their lot in life? How they can begin to be content? Any ideas? Be thankful for what you do have. Be grateful for what you have. Give thanks to God for what you've got rather than complain about what you haven't got. Start there. I'm sure there are other ideas, but that's a great place to start. Thank you, that beautiful lady over in the corner there. The motive and goal of godly teachers, and Paul's contrasting godly teachers with these false teachers, is not financial gain, but godliness and the glory of God. When I finish up, here at this church and you all appoint a new pastor, I would, I, I assume that there'll be some financial negotiations happen, but if the offer is not accepted because it's not enough, you probably haven't got the right candidate, is my guess. But that's not going to be my issue. Someone like Stephen will have to figure all that out. Give him $13 an hour. <laughs> well, if you're going to up the pay, I might stay for a little while then. Anyway, truly godly leaders, Paul is saying, truly godly Christian leaders are characterised by contentment rather than complaining. You can tell a truly godly leader they're grateful for what they've got. They are grateful to God for the opportunities they've got, the blessings they've got. And they probably use the word blessed, blessing a lot in their language. I'm blessed. God has blessed me with language like that. I, I think there's, there's an understanding, and some of you may have questions about this, but there's an understanding that you can be dissatisfied with where you're at in life and still be content. There's more I could talk about that. But Paul says this, verses 8 and 9. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. G.K. Chesterton said he was a great Christian author and um, very famous at, at the beginning of the 20th century, converted to Catholicism, wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And he said this, he was a crime writer and, 
and his, his books had done very, very well. And he said that one day he saw a very wealthy man walking down the streets of London. He was, a, he was an Englishman himself. And, and, and as this man walked past with all his fineness, fine clothing and fine things, he said this, there but for the grace of God go I. He was grateful that God hadn't bestowed upon him that level of wealth. And he was grateful for God, to God, for everything he had. And he made a huge impact on people. And after he became a Christian, he would still do his book signings. Do you have any G.K. Chesterton books? You got the full set. Wow. He... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He would sign books. After he became a Christian, he would sign books by looking at the person. And it frustrated the bookshops because the queues would go out the door. And he would just look at the person and he would do a little sketch of them and give them a comment in his book. And when I heard that, I thought, I'm never going to just sign my name. This is, I'm not anywhere near a GK Chesterton, but I'm not ever just going to sign my name in a book and give it to someone. I will look at them. I won't do a sketch. He was a gifted sketcher. He could do that really well. But I'll, I'll, I pray to God, God, give me something to tell this person. That's all we have time for tonight. If you'd like to obtain a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please pop over to our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Dear Timothy, Part 8, from our online store. As we've heard tonight, contentment is not dependent on our circumstances and what we have, but upon whom we put our confidence. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.